Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Hey, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. You look nice tonight. Oh, thank you. It's actually so hot inside this little closet. I'm down to my boxer briefs and my black socks. Literally. I know. You're going to be able to control yourself tonight? So you've been pretty busy lately. I have. One of the things we've been working on, and a lot of people have heard about it, we've been working on our new podcast, These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. And as you know, listeners, we dropped a trailer for that new podcast in our feed last week. Thank you for everybody who listened to it and has already subscribed on iTunes. I will ask if you haven't yet subscribed, and downloaded the trailer of These Are Their Stories on iTunes on that podcast feed, please do it. I know that it would really help us out in terms of getting the show off the ground, getting some listenership, maybe getting some great ideas for guests. We are counting on you listeners to make our first spinoff show, These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, a success. We also have something else that we need to talk about. Yeah. Okay. So we've been going every other week this summer and we're going to go back weekly in September. So yay us. However, just before that, we're not going to be on the air in one week or two weeks. It's actually going to be three weeks. We're taking a two week break right now so that we can prep for going back weekly, really assess whether or not we can get that done. Plus launch the Law and Order show, which is a very big deal, and just kind of get our act together. School starting, all that stuff. So we will be back on the air in three weeks, which is September tenth. And you got a little something you need to tell people. Oh yeah, well we we are still going to be doing our live podcast recording at the Hatbox Theater in Concord, but they double booked the theater. No, they did. We just found out. We just found out. Like, they're going to do like some literally like ten seconds I don't ago know, poetry reading or some. <laughs> Balloon animal artistry, some (laughs) stuff like that. We didn't get the love. So, look, we need to move our date. It's going to be Monday, September 12th. If you already signed up, we'll email you. But just if you're still interested, and that's a better date for you, come to the Hatbox Theater. We'll have a great time Monday, September 12th. You can go to our website and sign up at crimewriterson.com. Remember, we're going to be talking about the Summer Book Club, Wild Lake, still time to read the book. And that's going to be what we'll be talking about, audience participation, all of your fun favorite things like Crime of the Week and my awesome segues. Plus, we'll just ask the audience to ask us questions about the podcast. We have to talk about true crime. We'll get to talk about serial. We'll get to talk about making a murderer, all the fun stuff we talk about. Totally be doing audience participation. So in order to do that, just go to our website, crimewriterson.com. Click that link to sort of save your seat. And while you're there, there are other things you can do, Rebecca. Yes, You can buy stuff using our Amazon.com link. You can help this podcast go back to a weekly schedule by supporting it directly. Buy stuff using that Amazon.com link at CrimeWritersOn.com. You know what that means. Oh, you're going to roll it, aren't you? It's time. 
Roll it. Now Toby will read some items purchased through the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. Arc Naturals Breathless Plaque Zapper Fizzy for Small to Medium Pets, 30 Packets. SOL Women's Silicone Wedding Ring, High-End Silicone Rubber, Pink with Teal Turquoise, Size 9. Craze Pony FPV 5.8G Circular Polarized Mushroom Antenna for Multicopter TX and RX SMA. L-Type SMA Male. Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we're going to break down a bevy of developments in the world of true crime. It's going to be a veritable cornucopia of the cases featured in Making a Murderer, Serial, and a DC-based murder-slash-political-sex scandal. We'll also dive into the latest goings-on in HBO series The Night Of. And joining me to get all of that done is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Rebecca, just an honor to be here in Rio representing my nation. (laughs) Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And also with us is our very favorite Doubting Thomas, crime and noir fiction novelist, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Buongiorno, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Toby, I've been dying to hear from you. The Olympics have been going on in Rio, and I know that some of your favorite things to do in the entire world are to watch random Olympic sports that like no one else knows anything about. How are you enjoying it so far? I've been watching a lot of badminton, to be honest. Mm. Badminton wow. is kind of a family game. I've played a lot of badminton, and it's not on TV a whole lot. There's a reason uh, for that. Have you you watched any of the badminton? I have not, but I understand that the shuttlecock will get up to 200 miles an hour. What? It's not like backyard plastic shuttlecock badminton. No, it's, it's, it's worth, like, you can even just watch, like, four or five minutes to get a taste of it, like, it it is an unbelievable sport like the the athleticism of the players and i mean i think part of it is that the us isn't particularly good at it it's like china indonesia you know taiwan korea it's like big of, ping pong <laughs> yeah it is i mean it's 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 a similar nationalities but uh so i've watched a lot of that which has been really good little team handball um, I, I found that water polo was not as good as I remembered. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and there's like the track and field and stuff, which everybody watches. How about but, trampoline, uh, Toby? You've been watching the trampoline? Trampoline. No, how no about, how about the rhythmic gymnastics? That's not a sport. Oh, every, it's not a sport. It's in the Olympics. <laughs> so it's yeah, trampoline, by the way. Yeah. It's, Synchronized trampoline. <laughs> so uh, I also watched. When are they going to have uh, the bouncy house at the <laughs> Olympic event? <laughs> There's nothing funny about the Olympics, guys. Uh, I watched uh, Rugby Sevens. I didn't play Rugby Sevens, but I played rugby in college, so that was kind of fun to watch that. Wait, is there, what's the distinction? Well, rugby, you know, the way it's normally plays with 15 people. Oh, yes, I know Sevens, that. you take all the big guys out. So it's basically like, like football if you didn't have any linemen, essentially. So it's super fast, and it's seven on seven, and they're two seven-minute halves. You know, it's just like sprinting and tackling. It sounds like a Vegas table game. 
Rugby sevens. Does it Rugby not? sevens. <laughs> I don't think you guys are taking this as seriously as I am. Well, I actually uh, had, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter, Toby, but I actually have been a little bit outraged by the Olympics. I had a like meltdown this morning. And the Irish boxing? No, not yeah. the Irish uh, boxing. Over the, what I perceive to be criminal criminal coverage of the women's gymnastics team by NBC and the executives at NBC and Bob Costas in this ridiculous stunt where they flew Zac Efron to the Olympics and basically upstaged this incredible story of these two American women who can do things that no other freaking human beings on the planet can do. And they made their whole like story and all of their post-victory packages and all of their interviews about having pizza with Zac Efron. And it enraged me. Yeah, see, that's the great thing about badminton is that <laughs> it's, uh, Nobody it's basically does that. you have to watch it. On, no like, one's flying Seth channel. Rogen in so that they can hang out. Oh, my yeah. favorite badminton player. I mean, there's hardly even any, like some of them don't even have any commentary at all. <laughs> I bet. It's, it's just like the crowd noise. <laughs> they, don't so. have, they don't have any play-by-play people know what's going on. When they do, it's like Australians. Ah, gotcha. Right, right. There's no right. Americans who do. All right, you well, know the guy who used to do it? Uh, and then you can just cut all this stuff out. Oh, no, I'm not cutting it out. This is gold, Jerry. It's <laughs> gold. radio gold. Uh, the guy who did who used to do the badminton is, and I'm going to space his name, but he was a guy who did uh, hockey color commentary. He's a Canadian former hockey coach who had grown up playing badminton in Canada and was actually like super knowledgeable about it. But when you flip on, I guess this was four years ago, in the middle you'd be like, God, I recognize that guy. And then it was like, I, I think it was Mike, Mike Keenan or somebody. It's like, how the hell does he know about badminton? But I'll he, take things you hit hard for 500, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, so many wow. sports. Well, Laura, what have you been up to? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hanging out with Zac Efron and getting no, shit I for it. Um, I have to say, I'm not as much of a Summer Olympics person as I am for the Winter Olympics. Yeah. I like the equestrian, but you have to find like odd channels in the middle of the day to get that. What's been fun, though, you know, my son, this is like the first Olympics he actually remembers watching. But he's been outraged by what some of the sports are. So we were watching ping pong one night uh-huh. and he's also 10. So now he's starting to like try to push it a little with the language. So he's like throwing up his hands. He's like, for God's sakes, this is a rec room <laughs> sport. What's next? Ear hockey? Ooh. Yeah, he's, he's like outraged over the Olympics and goes stomping off. So, I mean, that's been kind of fun to watch. I love during the, the parade of nations when you see like the entire teams come out and it's usually all these very young, fit guys and gals. And then all of a sudden in the back, you see like some 60 year old guy with a beard, with a beard, like a walking beer by. I'm like, what is he? What is he competing in? Trap shooting. <laughs> it's always it's always Sailing, a shooting sport. Something like that. Yeah. No, the shooting sport people just they look like a guy who could live in our neighborhood. Yeah. They do. They do. And you know what? God love them because they are goddamn Olympians. There you go. <laughs> so I can tell you guys one other thing I've been up to that our listeners could perhaps sound in on. Okay. So my husband and I went to our first official Parrot Head Club meeting mm-hmm. a few oh, weeks ago. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And would you like you know, to explain for our listeners not in the know what a Parrot Head is? Okay, so Parrothead is basically a fan of Jimmy Buffett, and uh, we've been fans for a long time. We go to all the shows, we wear the outfit, I paint the car, much to my husband's dismay, with the little fins up. Um, He thinks that makes us a target for the police. So I said, let's just join the club because pretty much they drink and then they clean up the beach once a month and then they go to parties, which are kind of fun. So we went. But the thing is, you get to pick a nickname. Oh, God. Oh, it's like roller derby. Yeah. So, like, I need a nickname, and I have no idea. I'm like, I'm just Laura. I don't know. Brixie? That's what Toby calls me. Yes, Brixie. 
If anyone has an idea for a nickname for me for the Parrot Head Club, I would be much obliged. I know who to call on. The Bricker Babes. They need they need oh, to come up with a nickname for Bricker you. Bricker Babes, step up to the plate. <laughs> Tweet at Crime Writers On. Send us an email at CrimeWritersOn.com, Bricker Babes. Or even better, a voice memo with your suggestions for Laura's Parrot Head <laughs> nickname. Parrot Head drinking name. Yeah. Wow. So much has been going on. It's the big weekend, yeah. Wow, so much going on in all of our lives between table tennis and my outrage over <laughs> gymnastics and Toby's love of sports that nobody else understands. It's it's really something, right? Yeah, it's almost amazing that the legal system continues to move <laughs> along. <laughs> Yet it does. You know, last time we all were together, we launched a brand new segment on the fly for this podcast. Honestly, I just kind of made it up in the middle of the show and then added some sound effects. This whole show this week is almost all about that segment. So, Kevin, do you remember what the name of that segment was? Oh, it's... Uh, uh, true crime updates. You need to say it again so I can add some echo, Kevin. Oh, yeah. It's true, true crime updates. That's right, true crime fans. In a summer of legal twists and crime cases that have long captured our attention, another huge bombshell, a vacated conviction. This one we found out about when we were on vacation in Maine with no internet. and it was, See, we blew through all the data on our phone. Like, <laughs> we, what happened? We got alerts from Verizon about our phones. We were reading up all on the developments in this one. It involves Brandon Dassey, the young alleged accomplice featured in the Stephen Avery documentary, Making a Murderer. You might remember that interrogation video of the intellectually challenged teen seemingly coerced into confessing, help his uncle, Stephen Avery, rape and kill Teresa Hallback. What else happened? happens to her in her head extremely extremely important you tell us this for us to believe you come on brendan what else we know we just need you to tell us that's all i can remember all right i'm just gonna come up and ask you who shot her in the head he did why didn't you tell us that because i couldn't think of it Stephen Avery, of course, had spent 18 years in prison earlier for a rape he didn't commit, only to be arrested again after his exoneration for murder under questionable circumstances. Well, last week, in a shocking twist, Dassey's conviction was overturned by a federal judge. He said the Wisconsin Court of Appeals erred when denying Dassey relief due to improper interrogation techniques. Now, there's a lot to break down here. This was a long ruling. Kevin, I understand you read the entire thing All front to back. All 91 pages, yep. All right. This was not a federal crime. Why was a federal magistrate hearing arguments on the state case? Oh, that's a good question. So it's, it's because of the this law called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. It allows federal courts to look at state cases where there's an unreasonable application of the law, meaning that if a state judge or, or appeals court rules in a way that is different from the precedent set by the Supreme Court and they're materially similar, they can, they can jump in. So, for example, the Supreme Court says that it's protected free speech to burn a flag. If, if a, a state court ruled that it was wrong and convicted somebody on a crime of, of burning a flag, then you know there was a chance that there was federal standing. So that's how it got in the back door of the federal court. Right. So if there's like something that's unconstitutional, the feds can jump in. Right. And in this case, again, they're not looking at, unlike the non-appeal, they're not looking necessarily at the conduct of, of the people involved. They're looking at whether or not the Wisconsin Appeals Court right. was correct in its interpretation of what happened. Now, I didn't know this appeal was even going on. Honestly, I thought that the message that we got at the end of Making a Murderer was that Brandon Dassey was sort of out of turns with the, with the legal system. Toby, were you surprised to hear uh, when this ruling came out last week what happened? Yes and no. I mean, I guess it seemed like it was the kind of thing that ought to happen. 
But I guess like you just said, my impression was kind of that it wasn't really in the works or wasn't something that could happen. So, uh, you know, I'm glad it happened. It seemed like it was the kind of thing that should happen and that the reason why I guess I assumed that it wouldn't had more to do with the legal system than the facts of the case. Now, Kevin, what did the ruling say about Laura's favorite defense attorney, Len Kaczynski in particular? It said something <laughs> about his his actions being abhorrent. What was the word? Indefensible. Indefensible. Yeah. Now, Laura, you blew your top over uh, Len, <laughs> Len Kaczynski. Let me remind everybody exactly <laughs> who Len Kaczynski was and how he got got involved in this case. Kaczynski was Dassey's first defense attorney. I believe that uh, the way we described him on the podcast called him like a punchable howdy duty was the way we, <laughs> we described him. Um, we see him giving tons of interviews before even meeting his client. We see him commenting negatively about a confession video he's never seen. And then we see him work with an investigator to basically serve his own client, Brendan Dassey, up to the prosecution. Laura, making a murderer did get some criticism for being slanted, one-sided, portraying the prosecution in one way, portraying, you know, Kaczynski in a certain way. After sort of seeing what the judge said about Kaczynski, do you feel that the documentary was unfair to this guy? No. Uh, If anything, (laughs) no. No. They should have been harder on this guy. There's a section from the judge's ruling where he he has something to say about Kaczynski and he says, although it probably does not need to be stated, it will be. Kaczynski's conduct was inexcusable both tactically and ethically. It is one thing for an attorney to point out to a client how deep of a hole that client is in, but to assist the prosecution in digging the hole deeper is an affront to the principles of justice that underlie a defense attorney's vital role in the adversarial system. Snap! Oh, yeah. No, but but there's more. There's more that came out in this ruling because this is the thing where the defense investigator went and like basically forced this poor kid to confess. And if you and and this kid thinks this guy is working for him. Now, Kaczynski and this defense investigator actually emailed beforehand and they agreed that the investigator would interrogate him on the same day in which Kaczynski expected to lose his motion to suppress uh, Brendan's confession because then the blow of the loss would render Brendan more vulnerable. So that's even worse than what we know. Kaczynski canceled a visit with Brandon to make Brandon feel more, quote, alone for the interrogation. The same day the judge denied the motion, the investigator told Brandon falsely. So he lied to him saying, oh, Brandon, you failed the polygraph test. So, I mean, it just goes on and on. Don't even get me started on this. But thank I mean, I wish something had actually happened to Kaczynski. I don't know if did anybody see what he had to say. It was pretty he actually tried to justify this decision as like, well, that's what I wanted to happen. Right. But this is the thing. There's been a lot made recently about how in these cases where there's prosecutorial misconduct and misconduct and ineffective uh, counsel claims that there really aren't legal consequences for the people who act this way. I mean, don't you feel like that, that there should be some mechanism in place for there to be consequences for misconduct for officers of the court? Yeah. Are you talking to me? Yeah, I'm talking to oh, you. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think there there are systems in place. You know, there's usually a professional conduct committee in each state that oversees complaints against lawyers when there's been unethical behavior. I think where it becomes tricky when it gets into the appeals process is that they have to show very concretely that the action by the attorney uh, prejudiced the case in such a way that it clearly affected the outcome of the verdict. So I think... In this case, I would say this is pretty obvious that Kaczynski's behavior 
in getting this kid to confess, you know, impacted the outcome, but it's a fine line. So it is frustrating. Now, Toby, I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts. You know, we heard a lot in, you know, Serial Season 1 about what was going on with Christina Gutierrez during a non-Syed's trial. A lot more of that came out in the Undisclosed podcast about really just the incredible workload that she'd taken on, the work she wasn't doing for clients. There's clearly something wrong there. Of course, we don't exactly know what it is. So on the one hand, you have a lawyer who may or may not just be incapable, uh, you know, who's faculties are really not all there. On the other hand, you have a lawyer who is actively working against the interests of their client. If you had to pick one to defend you, which one would you pick? You mean which shitty lawyer would you pick? Yeah, I want to yeah. know. I mean, I want to know what... what <laughs> I, think I'd, I think I'd rather be with the one who's got too much on her plate than the one who's actively trying to put me in prison. Yeah. I, I just... I, there doesn't... He's an a-hole, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> I, amen, Toby. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that and especially with somebody like Brendan Dassey, who doesn't seem to have the sort of sophistication to kind of, you know, be making judgments about the legal counsel that he's getting. You know, you put your trust in the person who's going to be representing you and thinking that even if their advice isn't exactly the best advice, it's not advice that's going to get you in more trouble, right? It seems like the least they could do is give you possibly not the best advice, but but trying to help you. Right. And when you've got one of them working against you, especially, again, with, with Brendan Dassey and not being able to kind of pick up on that stuff, you know, I know there are reasons why you can't like incarcerate lawyers for doing stuff like this. But Brendan Dassey lost a fair amount of his life in prison, essentially because this guy screwed him over. Right. It's difficult to take, I think. And I, I don't have any connection to the Dassey family or anything just beyond watching that thing. But it's difficult to kind of think about what he lost as a result of this guy. And, you know, God knows what his what his motivations were. Now, Kevin, even though we know Kaczynski acted improperly, Toby just called him an a-hole on our podcast. <laughs> yes, yeah. Why wasn't this the winning argument in the appeal? Yeah, that's a good question. Dassey's appellate attorney argued under a precedent called Sullivan, which is Kyler versus Sullivan. Now, you'll remember from the Anon appeal, the ineffective assistance of counsel thing rested on a case called Strickland. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the bar, and it basically is a, you know uh, sets the uh, the standard for what ineffective assistance of counsel is, a and it's a fairly high bar. Sullivan is actually a lower bar, um, and it basically has to it says that the attorney has a conflict of interest, and so the I guess the attorneys thought this would be an easier get was to argue a Sullivan violation, right? And the federal judge said that. First, he said that it seemed like they would have been better off coming in arguing a Strickland violation. Okay. And if the judge says, you might have been, I think that means he said he probably would have ruled right, right. with that. The reason that he rejected the Sullivan argument is because they failed to actually demonstrate a relationship between Kaczynski and law enforcement. Kaczynski just did this on his own. So they weren't really able to establish that there was maybe some quid pro quo, that he had an actual conflict. So even though we all know that his counsel was ineffective, mm -hmm. this was a legal argument at the federal level 
that they could not sustain. Now, I think we can argue about whether or not the police planted evidence against Stephen Avery. I know that we all agreed after watching Making a Murder when we talked about it that that confession was not a good confession. And I'll be honest with you, um, I typically try not to make statements of fact that are actually just my opinion (laughs) on this podcast because I do work as a journalist and I remember very clearly saying that was a bad confession. It just was. It is a definition. I said something and I remember thinking like, maybe I shouldn't have said that. When I read this ruling, I was actually very relieved. I feel like, yes, I was right. It was okay for me to say that. So we all agreed on that. But the other thing that we saw in the documentary, which I thought was one of the most interesting parts that the documentarians did, but that the Dassey's trial lawyers did not do, is that they showed the conversation that Dassey had with his mother after the confession, the alleged confession, which made it incredibly clear that he had been made promises, he thought he was going home, and that he had no idea. Yeah, the jury never, his jury never saw that. What just happened. Laura, now, when you think about the Brendan Dassey case, and you think about that moment with his mother, and then you read this ruling, just what's going through your mind right now when you put all those things together? It's just so sad. I mean, I remembered, you know, I was just so outraged when I watched this, and I just you know, you're looking at this person who's who's a little bit slow. And it was just clear that he was so taken advantage of and naive and, and really helpless. And that the system manipulated that and took advantage of that was really disheartening to me. Well, the police, though, they want solid and, and like not made up information. So I know that we've talked about this before, but like what's in it for them to just let him guess and then tell him the answer. And then he says it and they say, you're right. Like what is in it for them? How, did they, I mean, they obviously thought it would work. Like, what does that say about the system where they are? You know, I was thinking about this because on face value, when you you see something like this, you think, why would the police, you know, lead this guy through the confession that they want to get out of him? And the only thing I can come back to is that they're so focused on the case at hand that they start to believe what they want to believe. And, And so in their mind, they might be thinking, well, maybe he's just faking. Maybe he's not really as slow as he's seeming this is an act and he's trying to, you know, and I could see how you kind of get into like maybe like an interview psychosis of sorts. Like I used to say when the attorneys I worked with were getting ready for trial and they had bad facts in a case, they kind of got in trial psychosis where they only saw their side of the case and that allowed them to go to trial and be confident because they blocked all the rest out. Mm -hmm. And it almost seems like the police in a certain way They had their version of the story, and for whatever reason, they were not going to stray from that, and they were bound and determined to get that confession, regardless of how they had to go about doing it. Now, Toby, we know that it's legal, there's precedent for police to be able to lie to suspects when they're interviewing them, or bluff with suspects, or say they know something they don't know, or say that someone in the next room has, you know, confessed and said, and, 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 you know, and fingered them as the culprit. What do you think of the fact that this is a legal way for police to behave in the United States when you see a case like Brandon Dassey's? You know, I think these things that the police are allowed to do, they're given this leeway with the expectation that they're going to use them in ways that are morally responsible. And I have to assume that a majority of the time they probably are used. Uh, the, the the police who I know, I, I don't think would try and set somebody up or, or anything like that. The problem is that it's, you know, obviously very easy to abuse those things. And especially when you have somebody like Brendan Dassey or I, I think the same thing happened with the Central Park Five, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I saw that. But with people who aren't particularly savvy about the legal system, don't know when just to not talk. It's like it's like it's one of those, you know, with a lot of power comes a lot of responsibility. Right. 
And the way that, that it was used in this particular case, clearly there was nobody, and I think I said this when we were talking about making a murderer, there were umpteen times, but it would have taken for an adult who was in a position of authority to say, look, this is crazy. They also talked about Brendan Dassey, like, you know, he's got those dead soulless eyes, you know, or mm-hmm. what, however they put it, is that his like affect was that of a cold-blooded killer and stuff. And it people had to have known what his story was. And the fact that there was nobody on the government side who you know, said, let's, let's slow down for a minute. Let's take a look at what we're doing and who we're doing it to. To me, it's an indictment of the, the whole system. Like you can point your finger at various people who were involved, but I mean, the whole system kind of broke down in that there was nobody there who provided a moral compass. As far as Brendan Dassey went, I mean, I think Stephen Avery is probably a slightly different story. I don't think it was as clear cut with him. And he also Um, had the moral compass of his defense team who provided, like, I think a very, even though they didn't prevail, they were in press conferences. They were in court. We saw Dean Strang saying, this is absurd. This shouldn't be allowed. What are you doing? And that voice really was absent in the Dassey case, right? If, If Dassey had had those two guys, I doubt he would have seen any time. A. B, it it shouldn't have to be the defense that does it. I mean, I feel as though, and and it's not just in this case. I mean, there's just a zillion cases, um, and particularly against uh, minorities in this country, where I think it's incumbent upon somebody on the prosecutorial or government or police side to say, look, we've got to get the right guy, not just a guy. Right. You know, tricking people into confessions that might very well be false, you know, hiding evidence, just all these different tactics that seem to be used fairly frequently using uh, forensic witnesses who don't know what the hell they're talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, or who have a a history of supporting the prosecution all the time. Mm -hmm. Like these are the kind of things that seem as though there's some kind of moral abdication on the part of the government. That, that seems like a the wrong attitude. It's the wrong yeah. metric. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about situations at work where, you know, everybody wants metrics, right? How do we measure the success of this? How do we measure this? And it's like sometimes the number of things is the wrong metric. It's not meaningful, but it is the metric, I think, for the way the government operates uh, in many situations. There's money and, and there's quantity. Now, Kevin, yeah. very much like Adnan Syed's appeal, the thing that we thought was the strongest evidence, or the thing that we thought was the strongest case, which I think was the Kaczynski stuff, wasn't the thing that won in court. What won instead was the confession not being coerced, but being involuntary. Right. Uh, whether or not the the confession is coerced, uh, you have to show that like they were under duress or something. Basically, what we're saying is when you look at his confession, we all question whether or not it's reliable, mm-hmm. right? But reliability is a question for the jury. Mm-hmm. Coercion is a, is a question for the court. And there didn't seem to be any evidence um, that they could see that he was coerced into making those statements. However, whether or not that he voluntarily made those statements is something else. There are two things that were going on that in and of themselves were okay, but put together in this situation made this a bad interrogation. The police said to him, we know the truth, which is okay for them to say, even though they're they're partially lying. And the other thing is that you're not going to be held accountable. You won't get in trouble for doing this. You're going to get to go home. You're going to get to go home. 
But by putting those two things together with a young man with little education and who's, who's intellectually challenged saying with no adult in the room, with no adult in the room by saying we know the truth and you're not going to get into trouble implies something else. And that was a ultimately a violation of the Sixth Amendment. It was rights. a false promise made by the yeah. cops. Now, Laura, have you ever seen anything like this happen in your work in defense where people have um, had confessions made? I mean, I think coercion is the, it's, the, it's, it's the simplest explanation of coercion is I'm hurting you and I'll stop when you tell me what it's a Sipowitz move. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, I think that's the most I mean, there's obviously more it's more complicated than that, but that's like the easiest way to define it. Like I'm doing something to you that I will stop doing. When, when you confess, right? Like mm-hmm. the waterboarding or whatever yeah, right, is coercion. Right. Um, well, it sounds like dealing with my son. <laughs> <laughs> Not waterboarding, I hope. <laughs> no, but Laura, I mean, has this, have you ever experienced that sort of this fine line between coercion, voluntary and voluntary? Have you ever worked on cases where, you know, it was in question whether or not a person's confession was voluntary? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've worked on lots of cases like that. Um, And, you know, I'm thinking about this from kind of the standpoint of Brandon being underage. And that's the part that concerned me the most here is the fact that he's he's underage and his mother wasn't in the room with him. Mm -hmm. Um, Different states have different rules. So I'm not sure how it is there. But, you know, in New Hampshire, you you need to have the parents permission. Um, The parent can be there. You know, whenever I went to go interview somebody that was involved in a juvenile case, I had to clear it with the parents. The parents usually sat right next to us during the interview. So that's the part that's concerning to me is that just upped the ante in terms of him having nobody there advocating for him. It concerned me, too, not just as a parent, but as just somebody who understands that he didn't get it. I mean, that to me really is the most... Well, he doesn't have a right to have his parents with him. He has a right to an attorney. He's underage. When you're a minor, when he's underage. When you're underage. But in this situation, and and the the federal magistrate spelled it out. He Under Supreme Court precedent, they don't have to honor his request to have his parent there. Why? Because he's 17? Because because the Constitution doesn't say that. Constitution says you can have an attorney represent you. It doesn't say you can have mommy and daddy come in. I think there are lots of rules that say a minor can only be interviewed by the police with a parent in the room. There are. So it must differ from state to state because I know in New Hampshire you wouldn't get away with that. No, you wouldn't. We, we experienced this and uh, and legally I, dead. I read the 91 page. I know you did. So, so did Laura, by the way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say I didn't, but <clears throat> I didn't. Um, <clears throat> okay. You know, Toby, there's a lot of great reporting about legal injustices. There's a lot of great books. There's a lot of great legal opinions. There are a lot of great thinkers who talk about this kind of thing, social justice movement, warriors. But it always seems to be pop culture projects that, as Kevin would say, move the ball down the field and actually making things happen. Do you think that making a murderer deserves some of the credit for Brandon Dassey's conviction getting overturned by this judge? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll give the same answer I gave a couple of weeks ago or whenever it was last time we talked about this stuff, which is I think that, you know, as a defendant, in order to get the best possible hearing, you need resources. And for most people, that's money. And for these few people, just the public outcry that is or, or just the, the notice that's brought to it by being on a podcast or a TV show or what have you, that in itself is a resource. So, you know, I don't know how this case would be reviewed if it wasn't for that. I mean, maybe it would. Maybe it was in a large stack of things are reviewing. It, maybe you just hear about it rather than the fact that it was done is because of making a murderer. But it seems to me that it, it probably came to people's attention because of the notoriety from the show. 
So, Laura, here's the big question. The police clearly messed up Brandon Dassey's investigation. Len Kaczynski clearly messed up. The entire justice system really clearly messed up when it came to Brandon Dassey. Does what this judge wrote and does what the outcome of this is change your view about whether or not Stephen Avery may have also gotten railroaded in this case, Laura? That's a t- You know, I think that's immediately what people are going to jump to, the conclusion. But, um, you know, I think we're going to have to wait and see how this plays out. I mean, I see, you know, Stephen Avery is already beating the drum, saying this is going to change things. Um, he's quoted last week saying the truth is coming out and that he's going to be freed based on this information with Brandon. I think it, we're going to have to wait and see it because there was a lot of other information about Stephen Avery's case that I don't necessarily know whether he's innocent or guilty, but I do know that there was situations within his case that kind of raised questions about how it was handled. So I'll be curious to see what happens next, but I'm not going to commit too much. What about you, Toby? Do you have any changing opinions on whether or not Stephen Avery got railroaded as a result of this Brandon Dassey ruling? Uh, no, I don't. I don't really think it changes a whole lot about Avery's case. I mean, I think the questions that I had about his guilt and/or innocence don't really change much with this. I, I, th- I think Brendan was sort of secondary to that part. What do you think, Kevin? I, it actually does change my opinion in the opposite way. I'm not going to say that I feel more like that he's guilty. I feel less like he's innocent. Why is that? And I'm going to parse it like this. Because when I was looking at the case against Avery, the state's argument didn't match a lot of the the evidence. And it's because they based it on what ended up being a fabricated story. Not even fabricated. A story that was just a mishmash of fantasy Mm -hmm. from Brendan Dassey. And it's like, oh, so they judge. said, this is what happened based on what Dassey said. So they forced the puzzle pieces to fit this fake confession. Yeah, and I was like, well, obviously, then this is a weak case against Avery. If you take that all off the table and you say, take the confession away and say, this isn't how it went down, then it's like, well, it kind of, I have a harder time denying the strength of the case of the state. What you're saying is Teresa Hallbeck went to Stephen Avery's property and then disappeared and died. Yeah. So you're saying that's the spine that is still on the table, even if you take the Stassi stuff off the table. Yeah. I mean, they based the case on that, like, she was chained to the bed right. and shot in the in the garage, and there's no blood evidence there or whatever. And they got that because they inadvertently led him down this path, and he made this story up. And so I'm like, well, of course that's... And I'm like, well, that's, that's a, a bad argument. I can't believe he was convicted because the evidence doesn't show that. Well, if you take away that fake narrative and start looking at what the evidence against Avery is, and there is considerable physical evidence there. Well... No, there is. And you look at it in a different light, I'd say, I would just say the dial just clicked a little bit for me away from being not guilty. And, you know, so that means he's in jail now. And so if he needs something to do, he should get an audiobook from audible.com. Oh, <laughs> because it's a great way to pass the time. I guess I don't get to say my opinion because we're just going right into the ad. No, nobody cares about your opinion, Rebecca. <laughs> they want to talk about audible.com and their great listen guarantee. If you don't like the book you choose, you can exchange it for any other book. Now, I will say two things. It's not too late to get a copy of Wild Lake by Laura Lippman on Audible and get ready for our special Summer Book Club episode. But also, we need to talk about this new book that came out. 
It's by someone. I'm not. Am I saying this right? Rabia Chudri. Oh, Chud. Rabia Chat. Ch- yeah. What's it about? Is it Rabia? Yeah. Am I saying it right? Rabia yes. Chaudhry. It's Rabia Chaudhry. Yes. A non-story: the search for truth and justice after serial. New York Times bestseller, I guess. As yeah. of today, right? Great job. Now, I will say. We have a very soft place in our heart for Audible. They were our first sponsor. Plus, I'm an addict. God, God bless them. They wrote up a whole script for us to describe what happened in Serial. <laughs> to explain to, to you, in case, listener, they say you have 500 million international listeners. In case you are not one of them, they would like us to explain what happened in Serial and why you should get this book. Well, Rabia, in her book presents new key evidence that she maintains dismantles the state's case a potential new suspect forensics including that Hay was killed and kept somewhere almost half a day and documentation withheld by the state that destroys the cell phone evidence I wonder what happens with all that I don't know we hear from Adnan about his life in prison he weaves his personal reflections including never before seen letters mm-hmm. Who uh, who's doing the audiobook do you know Rabia Chaudhry she, yeah. <laughs> she read her own audiobook yeah that's great so uh, just for listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash crime today and start your free trial. Again, show your support for Crime Writers On. Let them know that you got it here. Please. And you get a 30-day <laughs> trial at audible.com slash crime. Audible.com slash what? Crime. crime. Audible.com slash slash crime. Crime. Yeah, I still don't know if Stephen Avery did it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. <thank you. laughs> Way to close the loop on that. But I knew for sure that Brandon Dessie did not. And I feel really, really good that his conviction was overturned. So thanks for letting me say that, guys. I appreciate it. I agree with you, Rebecca. All right. Now, Laura, how do you think uh, Kevin did in that ad? And how do you think his transition to the ad was? You think that was smooth? You think it was clunky? You think it was maybe a little bit inappropriate? What do you think? I think it was medium. I was I was fixated Aww. on thinking, no, it was pretty good. But I was thinking, now, you know, I don't know if the guys in prison are actually, it depends. If they're out in the West Coast, they get better privileges in prison. So they might be able to listen to an audio book. Ah. Not so sure that'd be happening in New Hampshire. But, you know, if it did. Oh, in New Hampshire, they've got bupkis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you do like, not want to go to prison in New Hampshire. You, you want to have a public defender in New Hampshire, but you know, you do not want to go yeah. to prison in New Hampshire. You're going to be making uh, stuff in the wood shop and license plates. Literally. Yeah. Literally. Literally what well, that's the good thing about the 30-day guarantee is that if Mary <laughs> signs up through all the internet privileges that he has at audible.com slash crime. If uh, it turns out he doesn't have those yeah, privileges. Yeah, it was just no risk. 30 days free. Audible.com slash crime. <laughs> what did you think of that ad, Toby? <laughs> I, I've got two things I want to say about that. One is the idea of Stephen Avery listening to an audiobook about Adnan Syed. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like two pinnacle. What's interesting, Toby, you're right. It's sort of like peak true crime, the idea of Stephen Avery reading, you're listening to the Adnan Syed book. But, you know, what's interesting, and our listeners might not know this, is that, like, we don't pick... Unless we're talking about our Audible book picks, like the the Audible actually chooses the book that we... Well, they definitely want us to talk about... I think they target the demographic. Well, yes. <laughs> Which is cool. And like, I completely think that's a good well, they idea. They know our audience would really they, be enjoying They know it. our audience, yes. But I, I agree with Toby. I'm not sure it's the one that Stephen Avery would necessarily pick. And maybe like a little bit depressing for somebody who's already serving a prison a sentence, maybe for being wrongfully convicted. Toby, what was your second thought about Kevin's ad or the way he was delivering it? Well, I was thinking that Stephen Avery might want to listen to The Zhivago Affair by Peter Finn. Oh, <laughs> your recommendation then. 
Dr. Shivago? You know, that's How what I was named to after, to Toby. It's, 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 a, it's an interesting book. It's about the writing of Dr. Shivago and that it was a very sort of subversive book that the Kremlin was not happy about. And it's about its publication and how the CIA helped in its publication. And that was really seen as sort of a way of subverting the Soviet government. It's like a spy. Yeah, yeah, that's got Stephen Avery written all over it. Advertising tangent. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Kevin, would you like to give that Audible code one more time for our listeners to get this great offer? Yeah, it's audible.com slash crime. crime. Audible.com? kick you in the shin. Yeah, slash crime. Slash crime. Okay, it is time to move on for more True Crime Updates! Love, love the echo. All right, Toby, now last time we uh, were all together virtually recording this podcast, you gave us an update on the Bo Bergdahl case, and I understand there's been another update in the case that you want to fill us in on, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a second. Tell me when I should start. All right, Um, Toby, it's, it's it's your turn to talk now. Go ahead. It's my turn to talk, sweet. Okay, so Bo Bergdahl's lawyers have lodged a complaint against four-star General Robert B. Abrams, who is overseeing his court-martial. And what they are saying is that Abrams has admitted to burning over a hundred letters that he had concerning Bergdahl's case. And these letters, quote, span the full spectrum of opinion, end quote, on what to do with Bergdahl. Letters? Letters. Yeah, that's like so old school. That's old timey. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't know if some of the letters were printed out. Well, they probably weren't. I mean, why would you burn them? You'd have to delete them. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they describe this action as inexcusable and baffling and that it plainly disqualifies him from overseeing the case and that there's no substitute for the letters that Abrams destroyed. So it sounds like they don't really come out and say it per se, but reading between the lines, it sounds like it's letters that were offering, you know, thoughts about the way forward and what should happen with Bo Bergdahl. I'm stunned. You can't even smoke in a federal building. Where would you go to burn a bunch of letters? <laughs> you know, Bring in my burning trash can. I don't know. It sort of of reminds me of Petraeus hiding all those documents in his attic. I I just long for the good old days when you could just ask the Russians to hack your computer to find all all your lost correspondence. Right, right. Maybe that's why they had them write it up in paper so that couldn't be hacked by the Russians. (laughs) Okay, the other piece of information, there was a piece in the Washington Post about how the prosecution is trying to get the tapes that Mark Boll made when he interviewed Bo Bergdahl. Those are the tapes that we heard during Serial. Right. This seems like it probably won't happen, but it does have sort of echoes of when um, OJ's defense team went to North Carolina to get the tapes that another filmmaker had made with Mark Furman. So anyway, it doesn't sound like this is going to go through. And this article in the Post was about why it shouldn't and that there was no expectation that these interviews would be used in a legal setting and that there's a lot of journalistic organizations, including both NPR and Fox News, who filed briefs in support of not releasing these to the prosecution. Amicus briefs, as they're called. They haven't actually been formally subpoenaed yet. I guess they... They gave a draft of the subpoena for somebody to take a look at, and that's kind of where it stands at the moment. Well, it's an interesting issue because this is now the second time that something that aired on Serial has made its way into a real-world legal case in court filings. You know, it's like the Mm -hmm. judge did discuss Serial in Anand Syed's in the Anand Syed decision, and this obviously is a point of contention, like something is broadcast. I mean, Jay was interviewed by The Intercept. 
you know, is that interview now subject to impeach him as a potential witness? Yes, it is. Why is that different? The journalism shield law. He does not have to turn over work product. In Jay's interview, that was a published interview. But what about the parts of the tapes that aired on Serial? Yeah, they, they well, can use those, they but it's just, yeah. they can't use the stuff that wasn't. Got like, it. They can't yeah. get Jay's, like, the notes that the journalists took. Yeah, they can't listen to the other 24 hours of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Got it, got it. So the difference is there. They're trying to subpoena all the tapes. Yeah. It's got not it. the, the 12 minutes of footage they put on serial. Right. But they still can pull Mark Bowles into a courtroom and ask him to comply right. with this. And, the he, sub- can say and no. he can say no. And a lot of journalists will say no, and I will I will sit in a jail. Right. And we saw that on the newsroom on HBO. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So you know what happens. The least realistic portrayal of a newsroom I have ever seen in any medium ever. And that includes news radio in which they were never actually on the radio. I was in the newsroom on HBO stretched and everyone in the newsroom that I work in watched every episode. You mean where where, like the main anchor for the network went to jail for 45 days and nobody seemed to notice? (laughs) There was never any news story about what happened to him. Where the main anchor for network was just comfortable stating his political party over and over again. on television and that was considered like an okay thing to do anyway we digress all right do we have another true crime update all right now in a case unrelated to serial but one that i certainly have been following uh for much of my adult life there was a huge huge turn uh in the chandra levy case in the last couple of weeks now chandra levy was the intern in washington dc who went missing in 2001 and while she was missing her disappearance was tied to a congressman gary condit who then because their sexual relationship was exposed and he was the subject of a lot of scrutiny related to her disappearance. He lost his bid for re-election and, you know, his career basically ended. And then later someone was arrested for her murder after her body was found in Rock Creek Park. But there was a huge turn in that. Do you want to fill us in, Laura? Sure. So the man that was eventually convicted in 2010 of Chandra's murder, Ingmar Gwandik, and he was scheduled to have a new trial this fall in his case. Um, They were getting ready for that trial. And then prosecutors announced last week they wouldn't be going forward with that. Instead, they would be deporting him. And this is tied to the jailhouse informant, the former cellmate who testified against him. Basically, he lied about what he testified about. So just to kind of recap a little bit, Chandra, when she first disappeared in 2001, I'm sure everyone remembers that was watching the news. It was like, where's Chandra? She wasn't found for a year. And then they found skeletal remains in a park outside D.C., But this case is just very convoluted. You know, we have Gary Condit. You know, he's not reelected in 2002. As a little aside, he went on to own two Baskin Robbins ice cream shops in Arizona Hmm. in his post-congressional life. That also was not without controversy. You can look that up. There was some Baskin Robbins lawsuits. So anyway. Did he not have enough flavors or? You know, I I don't even know. That was too convoluted to even go down that rabbit hole. So right after Chandra disappeared, this jailhouse informant, the former cellmate, came forward and pointed the finger at Guandique, who was somebody that had already admitted assaulting two other women in the same park where Chandra's remains were found. But it kind of went cold for a while. And it wasn't until 2009 that they finally arrested him. And then in 2010, he was convicted. And this former Sally Armando Morales testified that Guandique admitted killing her. His defense argued there was no DNA connecting him to the scene, but he was convicted. And it would seem like it was largely due to this former cellmate. So in 2015, he was granted a new trial. A lot of different appeal issues were raised. 
And there was a lot of closed door clandestine meetings with the judge and the prosecutor and the defense attorney. That was never really revealed as to what was talked about, but it was related to the appeal. I'm going to take a leap and say it was probably connected to the fact that this guy was not a credible witness. And just in this case is so bizarre. What eventually brought this guy down was this woman named Babs Prawler. <laughs> Babs. <laughs> Babs. And Babs was a former neighbor of Armando. And she also had a little bit part in House of Cards at nice. one point. Nice. Yeah, totally random. So she recorded a illegally recorded a conversation with him in which he said that he had lied about this confession. So it was illegally obtained, but it was still turned over to the prosecution. They haven't confirmed that this is why they're not proceeding with the case, but I think we can all read between the lines. But, you know, with all of this going on, it's really sort of raised a lot of interest in the case again. And people sort of questioning, well, if this guy didn't do it, who really killed her? Are we ever actually going to know what happened to Chandra? And when are we going to stop relying on jailhouse informants to convict people? People with a stake in testifying yeah. should not, I think, be the linchpin of a prosecution's case. I mean, that's my opinion, but that's a huge criminal justice reform issue, right, Laura? Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, snitches get stitches. I mean, this guy should get some stitches because he's full of it. But it just seems like these people are so motivated. How can you really know if they're telling the truth or not? You really can't. Right. Now, of course, the um, one's defendant in the case is being deported. He's not going to be walking nope. around free. So I wonder how much his deportation option played into the prosecutor's choice to not pursue a new trial because they were sort of able to take him off of their docket that way. I don't know. It's an interesting um, case. That actually has come up in some cases that I've worked on. And that is something that does happen from time to time where there's somebody that they can deport that sort of ends the case right there. It's cheaper, right? Mm -hmm. So, Kevin, I think we have one more, don't we? True crime <laughs> update. No, we really don't. Now we're going to talk about HBO's The Night Of, the non-true crime product that we've been following all summer long. Now, there have two episodes now have passed since the last time we all got together. I don't want to spend, you know, hours and hours discussing it, although I know we could. I just want to sort of catch us up and sort of see where we are in the series. Now, Laura, let's talk about Nas, his evolution. He's in prison. He's now shaved his head. He's now put tattoos on both of his hands. One says sin and one says bad. Sin bad. Yes. Um, <laughs> Freddie is now asking him to do unspeakably horrible things, and he's doing them. What do you think about where Nas is right now about how Freddie has brought him into his circle? And what would you say to him if he was your client and mm. you were defending him right now? Oh, wow. That's a good one. As I'm watching this, I'm thinking, you know, initially in the beginning, when he starts to have this sort of change in this evolution, I'm thinking, you know, this is what happens. You put somebody in jail that wasn't a criminal and they become a criminal. But as it's gone on, I'm starting to wonder who Nas really is. You know, if he was my client and I'm getting him ready for court and, you know, we saw the scene where he wore the shirt that his mother picked out for him, you know, he's not going to present well. I, you know, I'm like, what are you doing? You've got to watch your back. You're, you're behaving like a criminal. You're not behaving like somebody who's innocent. You know, it was disturbing. It was disturbing to see the tattoos. And then we see him smoking crack the night before his uh, case is going to trial. Yes. It's just, I'm starting to wonder a little bit if this is like when we have sort of the unreliable narrator in books like Gone Girl and Girl in a Train, where suddenly at the end, we're going to find out that he really wasn't who we thought he was. Now, Toby, we had that very interesting scene, and I don't want to get too graphic, but that drug smuggling scene where Freddie asks uh, Nas to help him smuggle those drugs into the prison, it was pretty 
intense, <laughs> pretty gross, for lack of a better way of describing it. And then we see his defense attorney, you know, played by the wonderful John Turturro, with him in the visiting room of the prison. Nas thinks he's sort of getting over swallowing these balloons of drugs that have been smuggled in. In the vagina of one of his fellow inmates' mothers. <laughs> and clearly, John knows exactly what he's doing, and he addresses it with him directly. And he, you know, seems kind of nonchalant about it. Did you pick that up, Toby? You know, that that whole thing, I don't know if you saw the movie Maria Full of Grace, but it, it basically is taken, not the fact that it happens in a prison waiting room, but in the movie, it's about a woman who is given pass from Somewhere in Central America, I can't remember, in exchange, she's going to be brought to the U.S. in exchange for smuggling a lot of cocaine that she swallows. There's a similar scene where she's practicing on something. I don't think it's grapes. But then she has to swallow them and they, you know, they oil them up and stuff. So Well, I mean, they kind of oiled those ones up, didn't they? Oh. Yes, they did. Jeez. Especially to make balloon animals out of it. You can just uh, We don't need to talk about it. <laughs> I think they're probably broken down by that point. Probably, uh, probably. So the whole Nas thing, I could talk for quite a while about pacing in this, but it seems talk to happen. Talk about that. Very- I'd love to hear you talk about pacing in this. You would? Yeah, sure would. Um, Go for it. Yeah, very slowly talk about pacing. (laughs) I think they've made some interesting, so you can drink, but also (laughs) I'm not sure if I totally agree with them, choices about how much time they're going to spend on different things. Mm -hmm. This relates to the investigation in some ways in which, you know, once they start investigating the thing, it's like everything happens the first meeting with everybody it's like they meet the guy who's named after the drugstore. Dwayne Reed. Dwayne Reed. <laughs> and he just gets up and runs away. Right. Like he's just like, uh, 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 and, and takes off. And then conveniently, the woman goes to interview the guy who's driving the hearse. And so he can intimidate her and talk about what a crazy view of women he has and how they have to be snuffed out. And so that takes all of about a minute. The investigation goes extremely, extremely fast. Like that. Toby, st- I don't mean to interrupt, but you weren't satisfied with a prolonged scene on which we saw Box drawing lines on a map? That whole <laughs> thing was like, is this guy flying? Does he think he flies between <laughs> these spots? Because <laughs> the thing you would do is you'd follow streets. Anyway, regardless, I, I just kind of felt like that was all super rushed as compared to like endless things about John Turturro's feet, which I guess is supposed to be you know, some kind of metaphor for something, but doesn't, I don't think, require that much time. There's a lot of stuff in the first half that I think a lot of time got spent on. So going back to the whole thing with Nas, it's like this all seems to happen in a couple of discrete incidents, like lead him further and further down. And again, I I realize that you only have so much time and you have to kind of condense things, but the choice to draw out some of these other things and then condense this part, which I would assume is fairly crucial in the story. To me, it's a strange choice. Like I, I think you're supposed to feel towards the end of of the last episode that he's starting to understand that he actually has more sort of freedom and power within the social situation at the prison than he does outside the prison. I'm not sure what you're supposed to be figuring out about his sort of proclivity towards violence because it seemed to be more homophobic to me than anything else because he kicks that one guy like once in the ribs 
and then walks away until the guy says, I was going to throw it in your face, you faggot, or something. Mm -hmm. And he turns around and kicks the hell out of him. Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, are we supposed to come away from that thinking that he's like more pissed off about being implied that he was gay than that this guy would like threw acid on him. You sound a little bit dissatisfied with the show at this point, Toby. Is that is that the takeaway that I'm picking up here? I think it's a good show. And I, I kind of, maybe I'm in the spirit of the Olympics where you take the best people in the world and you pick them to death, <laughs> little things. But I do think that they've spent a lot of time on things that don't seem very important. And then they've had to really rush through things that I think would have been more rewarding to spend more time on. What about you, Kevin? Well, I, th- I think that they're demonstrating that Nas is breaking bad. You know, he's in jail and he isn't living like somebody who thinks he's getting out. And so we're starting to see examples of him, you know, going to the dark side of being in prison. And that includes getting tattoos and getting physical revenge on the guy that burned him and being willing to go along with the jailhouse economy of I'm going to swallow these these eight balls in order to maintain my place in Freddy's world to get his protection and all the benefits that come with it. And do you notice he, he also, in addition to the fingers, which is just a really bad spot. You yeah, know, tattoo on his arm, he, too, of a wolf. The tattoo of the wolf. Right. Again, and I think we're coming back again to this imagery of them being dogs in a kennel mm-hmm. and the call of the wild and I believe looking ahead that call of the wild I think is the name of the next episode okay well I actually I think that we've heard a lot of negativity about the show I, I really want to focus on some of the lighter moments that have happened and some things that really drove these last couple episodes I do think there's a problem I'm guessing Laura agrees with this rapidity which at which we are now at trial without a lot of the processes happening that would normally happen before a trial but we did see some other stuff we saw Chandra and her developing relationship with John Stone her you know going out drinking with him her showing him the banana showing him the banana uh, trying to get his attention her working on the opening statement and then taking his advice I'm more curious to know, Laura, what did you think of that side of things, what we saw out of the prison, you know, the evolution of this relationship between Chandra and John, their preparation for trial. What did you think of those scenes? The part that struck me was just I found it odd that they were waiting until the case was at trial to suddenly go out and start doing investigation on their own. That was definitely kind of at the wrong place for me. But I'm liking this sort of evolution of Chandra and seeing her become more secure, seeing her become more invested in the case. I always find it really a little odd when you see her going over to, you know, Stone's apartment and he just he has some very weird personal habits. I mean, like, <laughs> seriously, the scooping out of the cat box onto the counter next to the food. It's gross. <laughs> I, Super I'm gross. Like, what the f- Anyway, you know, doing his feet in the living room while they're sitting there. I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? But then, you know, the part where he comes in and he finally like I was like, I don't know if I'm the only one. But when his feet finally cleared up, I actually had to rewind and be like, did I really just see that? Are his feet clear? And then he gets this brand new pair of shoes out of the box. And that was that was a big moment. And then she was so distracted working on her opening that she couldn't even look at his brand new shoes. That's right. But that was a good part. I like that because I felt like now we're kind of seeing Stone suddenly having confidence in himself. And he's starting to think he can do this in a different way that maybe he hadn't before. And I I don't know how it's tied to the feet, but, you know, it was kind of fun. I like when he goes and gets all the herbs or, you know, whatever the powder that he got. And he's like, this one for feet, this one for sex, you know. And the the wonderful scene where he goes to the eczema support group 
and yeah. is just like bragging about how I'm, his I'm bragging to show it. Well, this is then this is what I like about the show. Um, I agree with Toby. There are some pacing issues. I think the performances are outstanding on this show. I think the show has a lot of heart. I think the scenes where we've seen Nas's parents now working these horrible jobs because they know they're going to have to pay for this expensive defense are wonderful. And I think the people playing the parents are wonderful. I think the balance of dark and light for me is very, very satisfying right now. It is a dark show, and they're bringing just enough into it Sometimes shows are so dark that I dread watching them, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that some shows are very well-balanced. True Detective, season one, for me, was a very well-balanced show. The interplay between Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey, that sort of interplay they had in the car with the dialogue, really did a good job balancing all the dark stuff. And I think that this show is bringing that same sort of, I think of it as like the HBO magic. I don't know, Kevin, do you think that uh, they're playing fair with us, though, in terms of like how these characters are developing and where our loyalties lie? I think it just feels... Like a game at well, this point? Do you know where you stand? Yeah. I'm, I mean, we talked earlier that obviously once Nas is arrested, he loses his agency and he is not no longer in charge of his own destiny because he's in jail. So as a character, what do you do with him? You have to have a focus of the story that takes place in the prison. However, the central question of this series is who the murderer is, is not going to be solved in prison. It's going to be solved outside on the streets in New York by John Stone and the rest of his Avengers, right? Unless there is a component to the solving the crime that is somehow in the prison, which we have not seen any indication of. So I do find while the prison stuff is an interesting tableau on human behavior in that kind of situation. Like a study on human behavior. Yeah. The real procedural drive, the mystery remains in New York City with John and his trench coat adventures. Do you think he's the protagonist of the story? I think he is the protagonist of the story. I think I, I always kind of withhold a judgment until the end. Don't you feel like you should know who the protagonist is during well, a story? But, but, <laughs> well, but, but like when it comes down to you have two people like this. Like you're saying, well, who's who's the protagonist? Is it Han or is it Luke? You know, it's. Uh, I think that John. This is John's story, even though it's about Naz's case. Mm-hmm. It's a big question. The finale of the series is, is what August twenty eighth. August twenty eighth, and that's before we tape our next show. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of our last chance to weigh in. Make you know, a prediction. To make a prediction, Laura, who do you think the killer is? Do you think that it's Naz? I don't think that it's Naz, and you know we have three options. I waver, but I'm going to go with the stepdad over the property. He wants that $10 million brownstone. Even though he was a sexy guy in House of Cards, you're going to go with the stepdad? Yeah, I didn't watch all of House of Cards. But yeah, no, I'm going to go with him because even when he was, when Stone was spying on him, he was already cultivating another victim at the gym. So what do you think, Toby? Who do you think the killer is in uh, the night of, if you have a prediction? I I think it's really hard to make predictions on fiction like this because they're usually going to try and have some kind of twist you don't see coming. So then you're like, well, maybe I should pick the guy who seems least likely. It's John Stone. (laughs) It's John Stone the whole time. It's crazy. Uh, You know, I don't know. In some ways, it seems like a satisfying twist might be to have that Dwayne, whatever his name is, get caught and then end up in the same prison as Nas and have that be some kind of showdown for him. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll be kind of disappointed if it's Nas. I mean, I think that's not the most interesting choice, but I don't have a very strong thought about it. So, Kevin, your last chance before the series finale on August 28th, who is the killer of the night of? 
I think that Nas will be convicted. I don't think he did it. I'm not sure, you know, if this were a real life thing, uh, the, you know, the crime, you know, reeks of a crime of passion. So the killer is somebody who's not a stranger to Andrea. So I guess I'd have to say, but we know it's the stepdad, but it, it really is hard to say. But, you know, I noticed that the night of is two years in the past. Yep. Which I think is somehow going to play into, why is it not today? So I, I feel that between now and the end, for some reason, there's going to be this past, this jump forward two years to today. Like ISIS did it because they wouldn't know about them? No, yeah, maybe he's dead. And then two years, you know, on appeal or something happened. You know what happened that night? No. It was Queen Elizabeth's first tweet. How come wow. we didn't know this clue earlier? Wow. Unbelievable. Mm. I don't know. I looked it up today. <laughs> <laughs> what will really disappoint me the most is if Nas gets off and then is killed in prison before he gets to leave. Oh, what a bummer, Toby. Yeah. That's, that's kind of like the tearjerker. Toby, you're such a downer tonight. Jeez. It's, it's a sad ending. I don't you know what it is? It's, it's all that badminton. It's gotten, in, it's gotten yeah, to yeah. you. Well, I also came, I had a uh, library board meeting before this. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's thrown me off. But, you know, Nas has gone really so deep into sort of being a convict. Yeah. yeah. It'd be really interesting to see what happens if he's exonerated and when he gets out of jail and comes back into the community, you know, try to start his life over with his family, you know, get a job, get a place to live, you know, apply for a credit card, <laughs> which is why I hope that he would check out <laughs> nerdwallet.com. Oh, Kevin Flynn. NerdWallet.com is the great website where you can go and check out and compare over 1,500 credit cards. Now, NerdWallet.com, they, they're not a credit card company. They don't issue them. They don't issue the cards. But what they do is they take their time to look at all the different credit cards that are available from the different banks and rate them. They look at all the different stuff, and they help you figure out, well, do you need a card that you know, is going to work for you to get you travel points or one that's got a really low ARP. They've got special cards that are just for like students who are starting out. I suppose if you come out of prison, that'd be a good one for you too. Nas might look into that. And it also comes with a lot of uh, helpful advice. So everything from financial experts that are giving you no hype reviews to them going into looking at the fine print and telling you, what's what. So get all you can from your credit cards. You deserve it. Find a credit card that works for you. Visit nerdwallet.com slash crime. crime. That's nerdwallet.com slash crime. Nerdwallet.com slash crime. crime. All right. It is time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of the week. You guys ready for this one? I'm ready. A Little Rock, Arkansas man says he woke up to find dog poop had been spread all over the floors of his house. The culprit was not a vandal or a fetish-prone burglar or even his dog. What it was was the family's Roomba. Their robotic vacuum cleaner was doing its <laughs> nightly rounds when it came across some stray dog do left by the family's puppy. Instead of just cleaning up the accident, the robot began to smear the feces all over the first floor of the house, getting it into every conceivable crevice, floorboard, and furniture leg. There actually people don't know what a Roomba is. It's a robotic vacuum cleaner. Yeah, it's like a, looks like a Frisbee. Everybody knows what a Roomba is. No, I heard is. somebody today said I didn't know what a Roomba was. It's a robotic vacuum cleaner. Yeah, you program it, it goes around, it just vacuums while you're... I used to want one until I heard this story. <laughs> the owner says his home, quote, closely resembled a Jackson Pollock poop painting. <laughs> now, when the internet heard about this story, they lost their 
pun intended, shit. It was dubbed <laughs> Poop Apocalypse. The Guardian. Poopocalypse? Poopocalypse. Poopocalypse. It was a Poopocalypse. Poopocalypse. It was a Poopocalypse. We're not even at the outtake part yet, Kevin. The Guardian newspaper reports this has happened to other people, including to a neuroscientist and a microbiologist. <laughs> what 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 the hell does that mean? The Roomba probably means it was their dogs. And has not a cool opportunity. Popolars. Why does it seem strange that it would happen to a microbiologist? Maybe they would just have a more acute concern <laughs> about there being poop between their floorboards. Oh, can you imagine being a microbiologist and having poop Jesus. everywhere? That's such a strange detail. Anyway, I'm sorry. Fun side note, the parent company of Roomba is iRobot, which is a kind of a local company here. A spokesman for that company says this kind of shit show is a problem that their engineers are working hard to address. And I do believe the happy ending of the story was that they did send him a new Roomba vacuum cleaner. Oh, great. He's just a new pup. All right. So here's my question. Yes, we can blame the Roomba vacuum cleaner. It was just the instrument that did all of the spreading. Well, we all know, despite what I said earlier, it's really the very, very bad, bad puppy that is responsible bad for this dog. story going viral. Bad dog. And we've all seen the dog shaming memes. We've all seen incredible videos of mm-hmm. uh, animals going viral. Toby Ball, what trouble would your family pet get into that would likely go viral on the Internet and make you as famous as this poopocalypse guy? Well, Rebecca Lavoie... <laughs> Oh, you have to propose? <laughs> no, you said Toby Ball. Um, Littlefoot, she won't really do it these days because she's matured out of it. But when she was young, she had, un- well, she still has unbelievable leaping ability, but you used to be able to get her to do it. Like you could like wave a little like cat toy up at like my shoulder level. So, you know, probably a little over five feet. And she would just go up and just get it. So she, she could like slam dunk. If she was my size, proportionally, she could probably dunk on like a, a 25 foot hoop. She she jumps up into windowsills that are way off the ground. Whoa. So she's basically the Simone Biles of cats is what you're saying. Yeah, but she doesn't even have like those loaded floors like those feminists <laughs> have. She just it's just takes off. It is, it's hilarious. I thought my, my dad, about as hard as I've ever seen him laugh, was him watching her just like she just goes way up and then she like kind of has to correct her body so that she can land okay. Anyway. <laughs> Do you ever think that the birds that little... F- foot kills is like just getting them like in midair i've never seen that happen although it wouldn't surprise me the other the thing that i should actually catch is that she we have a um, air conditioner in our living room and it's up pretty high and she gets on the roof of a car and then she'll jump from the roof of the car onto this little box of our air conditioner which is right by this window so you can see her like thinking about doing it thinking about doing it and then she jumps it's like you know four or five feet and then she lands on this little rectangle that's pretty impressive too so it's cat parkour I think you need to take some video of this and post it on the internet that's all I'm saying Toby what about you Laura what could one of your house pets do that could potentially go viral wow well I have to say for a while have you all seen the uh, cat in the shark suit on the Roomba yeah yeah (laughs) So for a while, I wanted a Roomba, but like Rebecca, after this story, not so much. So our pets, I think, you know, I was thinking about this, would probably end up more in a crime of the week. 
Um, so this is a little disturbing for our younger listeners, but Stampy the cat and Buddy the dog are like they're they're partners in serial killing chipmunks. So they it's like go kiss out. the girls. <laughs> oh, it's it's awful. And I looked out the window and I made a video one day and then I was like, you know what? That's almost too disturbing to put on Facebook because they'll pounce on it. But then what happens? And this was the crime this evening in our house. They become very attached. Well, especially Buddy the dog becomes very attached to these dead chipmunks. So he carries them around. And when he goes outside, he rolls over the top of them. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Our dogs do that. They love, they love rolling on dead stuff. It's disgusting. So tonight he came in and even my son goes, God, why does Buddy stink so bad? And we're all like dead animals. So you got to buy him a rubber something. Yeah. He smells like corpse. Oh, it was gross. It was like the corpse flower that's in bloom this week. So, oh. um, you know, the fire chief and I had to take him down into the basement into the walk-in shower with the nozzle. And we had to give him a full-fledged shower this evening because he had been rolling over his kill out there. So, so which one? One of your pets is Freddy, and which one's Nas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? What could one of our house pets do that could potentially make us famous on the internet? Oh, you know. You know, we, we just came back from vacation. We went up to this very nice cabin in Maine, and uh, it was a little boathouse right on the water. It was beautiful. Beautiful. I hope the owner doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we brought both of our dogs to this little island, and I went into town with the girls, and Rebecca went canoeing with the boys, and we left Stuart in the house, and Stuart freaked out and ran right through the screen door <laughs> to get out. He left a dog-shaped hole in the screen door. <laughs> Bang. And so then the next day, we're like, well, okay, we want to go to the beach. Uh, well, we can't leave this. We closed the glass door, and he ended up chewing all around the he unfinished pie. He ate the door. <laughs> oh. So yeah. it took a little Benadryl to take the edge off. <laughs> that prescribed. It was all cool. But yeah, the dog was horrible. I'm not sure he'd make us viral, but he would make us famous for being criminals. I think the look on my face yes. dealing with this probably would have gone viral. I think we could go viral <laughs> for the hasty HGTV-like repairs we did to that house. <laughs> High five, bro. High five. Rescreened a door, wood buddy those doors, got who, some sandpaper. Who needs a Phillips head screwdriver when you got an old knife? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I guess we should probably end it on that note. Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to tweet with you and admonish you for allowing your cat and dog to become a serial killer pair. How can they reach you on the Twitter? It's at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if our listeners want to connect with you over their shared love of competition level badminton, how can they reach you on Twitter? At Kevin P. Flynn. <laughs> <laughs> and Kevin Flynn, if our listeners want to connect with you on the Twitters, how can they do so? You can send your angry tweets to me at Toby Ball NH. <laughs> and if you want to send me a tweet or follow me on Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. Our show is also on Twitter at CrimeWritersOn. Send us a tweet or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted on our website, CrimeWritersOn.com. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter, buy stuff using our Amazon link, get more info on our upcoming live podcast taping, and subscribe to our brand new podcast, These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. If you love this show, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners discover the show. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the teeny tiny closet that we sit in in our underwear and pretend it's a media empire <laughs> in our basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. 
How about you ask the question? And it's, because I think I think uh, Laura actually one of the guys. Threw right. It, it wasn't right. me. So stop talking. Yeah. Okay, that would really help. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back. I'm gonna go make myself a screwdriver. Okay. No, you sound good. It's just you were a little bit. If you could just speak up your gain a little bit more. I think I switched. Wait, the pickup pattern in the back. Yeah, because yeah. it was I was going with the universal. That's what it was. So you want the third one over the one that looks like the upside down apple. It's a heart. It's not an upside down. That's cardioid, which is just like a heart. Yes, I know, but it looks like <laughs> the microphone is the stem of the apple. All right, it is time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast. A little something I like to call the crime of the week. What? Nobody's gonna say the sound effect. Clunk clunk. Thump thump. Oh god. It might be the AC in my house. Sorry, Laura, you're just going to have to sweat like the rest of us. It's <laughs> my air conditioning. Oh, wow, what is that? <laughs> what is this black magic you speak Laura's of? Laura's like, I need to go turn down the hot tub and turn off the air conditioning and power down the private jet. <laughs> Doesn't she have a manservant who does this for her? I don't know. Uh, Where is she? Did she leave? Right. Oh, she has central air, so I bet she has to go I'm, somewhere. Yeah, she has to go to the west wing of the home. <laughs> No, I had to go in and yell. It was the boys upstairs. Oh, gotcha. They had fans and air conditioning on, so. Fans and air conditioning? I know. It's, it's like belt and suspenders. What the fuck? I know. Oh, don't Steve. take that. That's not fine. I thought, I'm cutting that. I'm cutting that. Ouch. I'm cutting that. Oh, that's just for us. That's, that's for our, That's just for you. That's for our Patreon listeners. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Right. You got to pay extra to get that. Our one Patreon person who's paid $1 a month. Um. Sounds like little Miss Bricker is on the line. I'm here. Hey, Bricky. Ooh, you sound great, Brixie. It's the wine. (laughs) (laughs) Partners in Crime Media. With hundreds of different credit cards out there, choosing the one that fits you best is tough. That's why there's NerdWallet.com. Their personalized tools let you compare over 1,700 credit cards in seconds, making it easy to find and apply for your next credit card. Get all you can from your credit cards. You deserve it. Find a credit card that works hard for you. Visit NerdWallet.com crime. That's NerdWallet.com crime. NerdWallet.com crime. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.